0: This is WMNF Tampa. Thanks for being with WMNF today. We are a listener supported station and that literally runs on, we all run on donations. Our next drive is, uh, drive days are Wednesday and Thursday. You can do your part by donating online at WMNF.org or calling 813-238-8001 weekdays. Thanks for all you do. This is background briefing. Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I am Ian Masters and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with an analysis of how the current war between Hamas and Israel and the communal violence in Israel itself between Jewish vigilantes and Israeli Arabs is playing out in the Arab street and how it is impacting governments in Saudi Arabia, Morocco, Bahrain, Sudan and the UAE which have recognised Israel. Sarah Lee Whitson. The Executive Director of Democracy for the Arab World Now, DAWN, an organization set up to continue the work of Jamal Khashoggi, who was murdered on orders from the Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, joins us. The former Executive Director of Human Rights Watch's Middle East and North Africa division, we will discuss the extent to which the U.S. is enabling this conflict and the asymmetry in a war between the most powerful military and only nuclear-armed state in the Middle East and the divided Palestinians caught between a corrupt and impotent Palestinian authority and a fanatical and cynical Hamas. Then we'll speak with Noura Erekat, who is a human rights attorney and professor of Africana Studies at Rutgers University and a member of the editorial committee of the Journal of Palestine Studies and the author of Justice for Some, Law and the Question of Palestine. She joins us to discuss her article at the Washington Post, Sheikh Jarrah, Highlights the brazenness of Israel's colonialist project and the suffering of a stateless occupied people caught between overwhelming military force and the divided representation of corrupt sellouts and religious zealots. Then finally, we'll go to the UK to speak with Laurie Labourne Langton and Martin Lawrence, the co-authors of a new book just out, Planet on Fire, a manifesto for the age of environmental breakdown, which offers a roadmap for a global, social, economic, and political transformation to urgently address climate change and reimagine a new way of life that can bring about a healthy and flourishing environment for all. And joining us now is Sarah Lee Whitson, who is the Executive Director of Democracy for the Arab World Now, DAWN, and was formerly the Executive Director of the Human Rights Watch's Middle East and North Africa Division, where she led dozens of advocacy and investigative missions throughout the region, focusing on issues of armed conflict, accountability, legal reform, migrant workers, and political rights. Welcome to Background Briefing, Sarah Lee Whitson.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Well, thanks for joining us, and the ongoing war between Israel and Hamas over Gaza and the communal strife within Israel itself with vigilante groups attacking Jewish nationalists, attacking Israeli Arabs. It's happening on two fronts, but I'd like to get from you, if we could, Sarah, what's happening in the broader Islamic world and how they're reacting to this. There's a virtual conference underway in Dubai of the Organisation of Islamic Cooperation, and there have been some acrimonious Statements from various members. The, those that have supported Israel and recognized Israel have been under attack Bahrain, Morocco, Sudan, and the United Arab Emirates from a number of delegates. Not surprisingly, the um, Iranians, Zarif, the foreign minister, has been attacking those that have already made recognized Israel. But the Afghans are, and of course the Turks as well are extremely upset with what's happening. And apparently on the street in the UAE, in the Emirates, in Qatar as well, there's a lot of sympathy for the Palestinians. In fact, there was a demonstration in front of the Al Jazeera headquarters in Qatar in support of Hamas, where Ismail Hanyaya, one of Hamas's top leaders, led a rally. So what are you learning or what are you hearing uh, is going on in terms of kind of a split in the Arab world over those who are sympathetic to the plight of the Palestinians and those who've made a deal with Israel?
1: Um, Well, I don't think there's really a split in the Arab world uh, or the Muslim world. There is, you know, across the board near unanimous sympathy and support for Palestinians opposition to the military occupation of Israel uh, and, you know, and this is something that goes back decades, so it's fairly deeply ingrained uh, in the sentiments of the public. Um, where the split is, is, you know, a few unelected uh, rulers, particularly, obviously, the UAE in Bahrain and in Morocco as well, um, have decided to normalize relations of their countries, regardless of the popular sentiment and the will as part of everything else they do with zero accountability uh, or zero legitimacy, for that matter. Um, And the saddest case, of course, is Sudan, where the Transitional Council, which is a military-civilian council that has Mm. interim rule um, before the country can have elections and transition, hopefully, uh, to a democracy, has basically been pressured uh, to normalize with Israel in order to secure the release of Sudan from America's terrorism list. And, you know, the meaning resulting in uh, hundreds of millions of humanitarian assistance now able to come into the country. Um, so, you know, uh, under tremendous pressure, they have done that. Um, but really the normalization agreements of the UAE, uh, Bahrain, Morocco, which is a quasi agreement, is, is not at all a reflection of popular sentiment in any of these countries.
0: But could that have political consequences for the leaders if the street is against what the leaders are doing? Uh,
1: Well, I mean, I don't know about uh, the UAE. I mean, we're talking about a tiny, tiny population of Emirati citizens, probably 250,000 adults, Uh, adult males, make up the entire citizenship of the UAE, and they are all uh, very, very uh, handsomely... Rewarded for being Emirati citizens, I don't know that it will have any serious consequences uh, internally for them. But for Bahrain, which uh, does have a bigger population, uh, does have more of a real politics, political parties historically, um some that are continued to allow to exist, it really is an issue that cuts across the Sunni Shia divide in the country. Um, so we'll put a pressure on the Bahraini monarchy. Uh, And certainly in Morocco as well, uh, it's not a popular move at all. Uh, However, Morocco obtained a reward uh, for its normalization, which the Moroccan uh, general public does strongly support, and that was U.S. recognition uh, over uh, Western Sahara, over Morocco's uh, annexation of Western Sahara. Uh, And, uh, you know, I think that muddies the waters quite a bit in terms of Uh, criticism of uh, uh, King Hassan quasi-normalizing with Israel. They didn't quite go as far as the Emiratis and the Bahrainis.
0: Well, apparently at this conference of the Islamic states, the Gulf leaders and the Saudis, in defending themselves against criticism from Turkey and and from Iran and uh, Afghanistan and other Islamic states, they're Arguing that, that what Hamas is doing, these indiscriminately firing these rockets is cynical and dangerous and unnecessarily provocative and endangering Israelis and Palestinians alike. So, is that resonating? <sighs>
1: Well, I mean, I think it's factually accurate that um, uh, those things are true. Um, But, you know, clearly the Hamas rockets are a consequence uh, of a boiling point. Um, The evictions in Sheikh Jarrah and the protests that were violently quashed uh, by Israel in Al Aqsa Mosque just being the tip of the spear, really. Certainly, Hamas's rockets uh, have not been helpful uh, to the people of Gaza, and as we see, have invited such a brutal, heinous disproportionate uh, counterattack from the Israelis, which they were chomping at the bit to do. I mean, for them, this is a lovely opening to uh, quash whatever uh, forces or, or strength uh, Hamas may have assembled over the past few years of quiet. But otherwise, I think obviously the fact that the Emiratis and the Bahrainis uh, have been so tepid and invisible in their response to the you know uh israeli vigilante attacks on palestinian citizens of israel uh shooting at uh, palestinian civil civilians in hebron on top of what's happening in gaza uh, does put them in a very embarrassing situation across the region Um, the emirati ambassador uh, in israel has had nothing to say i mean Literally, while this has been underway, he tweeted a photo of himself visiting a horse farm. Um, that was his commentary about his presence uh, in in Israel. So, I think it has uh, certainly uh, bruised the Emirates in particular, which is really seen as the leader of this normalization strategy uh, in in you know the the, the shamble that's been presented for. Uh, any kind of improvement in status for Palestinians as a result of this normalization, because that's the argument they made. Yeah. You know, we're we have forestalled Israeli annexation. Uh, we are going to, you know, yet again, uh, build and develop uh, the West Bank economically, um, as if that's what the problem's about.
0: And this, of course, is the great achievement of Jared Kushner we're talking about. But again, I'm speaking with Sarah Lee Whitson, the Executive Director of Democracy for the Arab World Now, Dawn, who was formerly the Executive Director of Human Rights Watch's Middle East and North Africa Division, where she led dozens of advocacy and investigative missions throughout the region, focusing on issues of armed conflict, accountability, legal reform, migrant workers, and political rights. So what's happening in Jordan, where there's a majority Palestinian population essentially been marooned in camps since what, about nineteen forty eight, or certainly since sixty seven. So there've been some unrest and there's also been some tensions at the very top in terms of the monarchy with the king and his and his half brother, who it looks as if there might have been some Saudi mischief in stirring up that trouble. But where where things stand now in terms of Stability in Jordan.
1: Um, well, uh, it depends, you know, what tea leaves you're reading and and what is really behind this plot. I don't think we've heard the end of this story yet. Uh, Prince Hamza remains under, you know, I, I would say described him as kidnapped um, by his brother, the king. Uh, and put under some kind of lawless house arrest in uh, the palace or a palace has not been seen or heard from other than um, some kind of a memorial visit or some kind where he silently walked alongside the king. But the two Jordanians, Basim Awadallah and uh, another very close uh, ally of Prince Hamza remain actually imprisoned and the you know Jordanian government has alluded to the role of Saudi Arabia in fomenting coup planning uh, by Prince Hamza you know how much of coup planning there actually was we don't know because the uh, government of Jordan has certainly not provided any evidence but from the Saudi perspective from MBS's perspective it was very much a win-win situation because if they did topple Uh, King Abdullah, who had been a bit of a thorn in the side of the direction of normalization, which MBS very much wanted to go with Israel, and uh, had a number of squabbles going on um, with Israel that that led to uh, his son not being allowed to pray uh, at Al-Aqsa, at Haram al-Sharif, and literally turned away. If the coup succeeded and MBS was able to install someone like Prince Hamza with whatever understanding of of, I don't know, uh, agreement uh, to be aligned with him, that would be a win for MBS and if he failed in the coup plot, it's still a a win for MBS and it's still a lose for the king because it will have been demonstrated just how unstable and wobbly uh, King Abdullah is and how he can actually be knocked out pretty easily. I mean, that's the thing with all of these monarchies. They don't actually have any stability it's always one poof and you're Mm. gone uh and that was a very clear message sent to abdallah to bring him in line
0: but what's happening in terms of the street again in jordan given the majority palestinian population king abdallah's wife is also palestinian
1: Well, there have been uh, some protests, but uh, nothing massive, um, nothing too massive, because, of course, it will very easily and is spilling into on social media of denouncing what's happening uh, in uh, Gaza and what Israelis are doing, but also denouncing uh, King Abdullah for what he's continuing to do to Prince Hamza. Prince Hamza for the Jordanians, the ethnic Jordanians. The Bedouins have a very strong base of support. Um, so it's very hard to sort of curtail protests so that they're only about Palestine or only about one thing when there is a tremendous amount of grievance uh, among Jordanians based on domestic issues, based on the economy, uh, based on you know the, the COVID catastrophe of uh, uh, people left jobless and, and impoverished. And uh, I would say it's very volatile situation now uh, in Jordan and I wouldn't be surprised if more massive protests break out uh, as they have in Lebanon, as they have in Iraq, as they have in Algeria because there are so many different pressure points of grievance that people see no end in sight for.
0: But is this war uh, over Gaza sparking or being a catalyst for these grievances are people demonstrating in the countries that you just mentioned because of what's happening between the israelis and the palestinians
1: well, both. I mean, both. There have been protests in Jordan um, before uh, this attack uh, in Gaza. You know, the entire teachers' union was shut down um, this past year because of protests. Teachers have been arrested uh, in Jordan. Uh, so there have already been ongoing protests. There were some protests over the uh, arrest of Prince Hamza. There are, you know, that. There are a lot of pressure points, and this is now yet another one, and it clearly is is leading to and mobilizing protests across the Middle East, but across the United States. You know, there was a protest in Oklahoma. There was a protest in Cleveland, Ohio. You know, this there is a, a, a lot of a lot of protesting happening in many parts of the world big protests in uh london uh protests in paris which (laughs) macron quashed and 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 literally brought in security forces police forces to quash i mean it's pretty disturbing in europe the way that in france and germany there has been a, a curbing of palestinian protest uh and and expressions of support
0: And, of course, the question arises, is is there any way to restrain the Israelis if they're prepared to blow up the building that houses the Associated Press? And they had cameras on the roof of that building. They were 24-7 showing what was happening across Gaza. And I believe the Secretary of State, Lincoln, spoke with the head of the Associated Press. Obviously, they're pretty upset about it. But what's the U.S. doing? I mean, the fact that the Israelis are are that brazen to blow up the building, housing, international media, and, of course, Al Jazeera, and I mentioned demonstrations in Qatar in support of Al Jazeera and against Israel that was addressed by this Hamas leader. The Israelis are killing a number, or at least they're trying to kill a number of the Hamas leaders, and the Egyptians are now saying, well, how are we going to mediate a ceasefire if you kill all of Hamas's leaders. So address that, if you will.
1: Um, Well, in terms of the U.S. role, um, far from urging Israel to uh, ratchet down, you know, restrain itself from the bombardment of Gaza and so forth, the U.S. has enabled it. Um, The United States was the sole country to block discussion of a a ceasefire resolution at the Security Council on Friday. Uh, Our new UN ambassador, Thomas Greenfield, that has been her first contribution uh, as ambassador to the UN, as America's ambassador to the UN, being one of 15 states to block a ceasefire resolution. What the United States has made possible for Israel uh, is for Israel to take the time it wanted, to take the time uh, it demanded to bombard Gaza, to punish Hamas for firing rockets, and, you know, in the parlance of (laughs) the IDF, to clean up. And that is what the United States has allowed to happen over the past several days. Now, I understand there is new effort to have a ceasefire discussion uh, on Monday. I hear it might actually be happening on Tuesday. Um, But the United States you know, protected Israel from any international effort uh, for a ceasefire since last week. Um, so is the U.S. going to be able to calm things down? No, the U.S. is actively uh, feeding the fire and, and ensuring that Israeli bombardment rages on. Uh, it's it's pretty stunning. It's pretty shocking um, that this is literally ambassador's uh, Ambassador uh, Thomas Greenfield's very first act as UN ambassador
0: well I'm hearing reports and I don't know how solid they are that Hamas is more popular than ever amongst the Palestinians because they they warned about they warned Israel not to particularly the border police and the cops not to move in on the Al-Aqsa Mosque which is the third holy shrine in Islam where they fired stun grenades and 300 Palestinians were injured, and that was in many ways the trigger. Hamas warned not to do it, the Israelis did it, and then the rockets started firing, and then the airstrikes uh, in retaliation started, and the cycle of violence is being continued, and we we don't know exactly when it will end, or how it will end, but do you have any reporting on that, Sarah, amongst the Palestinians? uh, Hamas, of course, is a militant organisation, the very word in Arabic means zeal, so... If Hamas is more popular amongst the Palestinians, that's not helping the Israelis. They they like having the passive Abu Mazen, the head of the Palestinian Authority, who basically cancelled the election because he knew he was going to lose it. So it doesn't seem to be helpful from the Israeli point of view to have radicalized the Palestinian population in support of Hamas.
1: Well, I mean, I think it's been very much in the Israeli interest to keep the Palestinians weak and divided. Uh, And they have been very successful, uh, as you've described, the uh, rivalry between Hamas um, and uh, the Palestinian Authority under uh, Abu Mazen. You know, how much support there is for Hamas, I don't know, and I'm really skeptical about um, because their actual rule within Gaza has not been popular. Uh, and I don't think it was, you know, with a lot of broad support, because they have been repressive and they haven't brought any improvement um, through their hard stance uh, or, or in, in the lives of Palestinians. And they've been very heavy-handed in their own rule jailing journalists, torturing perceived traitors, even killing some. So it, the Palestinian people are actually just stuck with terrible, terrible leadership on yeah. both sides. Uh, and I mean the PA and and uh, Hamas. And certainly there's some probably feeling of satisfaction uh, of, of some kind of response to the attacks on Alexa Mosque from the entire Muslim world, you know, it was Hamas that responded, no one else did. Um, Mm. So, that kind of, you know, uh, there's an expression in uh, uh, Arabic, you know, cools the heart, you know, when you're so mad and you see something happen. Um, But I don't know if that actually translates, therefore, into support for Hamas, especially when if you're in the person in Gaza and your (laughs) house has been destroyed. I mean, 26,000 families have fled from their homes is what's been reported. Then how can you be grateful to Hamas for basically having contributed to your homelessness?
0: Well, that's true. And they're obviously an incredibly nasty organization and they are quite brutal and they do place their rockets they fire them from hospitals and kindergartens and schools and etc so i can't imagine they're popular with the palestinian people but as you say the palestinian people that's the great tragedy they're, tra- they're stuck between this militant group hamas and this useless corrupt group the pa the palestinian authority and they don't have any real representation and
1: I but guess that's that- that's that's not that's not accidental that's deliberate Right. That, that is, that is a deliberate strategy of Israel uh, to keep Palestinians chained uh, to the corrupt leadership in the PA that that does Israel's bidding in many parts of the West Bank. Right, but but,
0: but um, the Palestinians are, are also culpable, aren't they? These, these crooked leaders and these fanatics in Hamas. I
1: mean, absolutely, absolutely. But but my my point is that. Uh, uh, Palestinian leaders are not allowed to emerge. Palestine civil society oh, is with popular uh, support, uh, like uh, uh, Barhouti, who's sitting in prison but running for, for president. Mm. Um, so many nonviolent, peaceful protesters, s- civil society leaders, student leaders, uh, like Raisa Amro in uh, Hebron, uh, are, are persecuted and jailed. Um, you know th- th- there is no freedom of speech for Palestinians in 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 the West Bank uh, vis-a-vis Israel, um, and they are unable to gather or assemble, even whether they have um, their pretend election for a pretend authority that has pretend power. It's up to Israel to allow it to happen.
0: Right. Well, Sarah, I thank you so much for joining us here today. I appreciate it. You're very welcome. And again, I've been speaking with Sarah Lee Whitson, who's the Executive Director of Democracy for the Arab World, now DAWN, and was formerly the Executive Director of Human Rights Watch's Middle East and North Africa Division, where she led dozens of advocacy and investigative missions throughout the region, focusing on issues of armed conflict, accountability, legal reform, migrant workers and political rights. We're going to take a brief station, Brackham, back discussing the suffering of a stateless occupied people caught between overwhelming military force and the divided representation of corrupt sellouts and religious zealots. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Noura Arakat, who is a human rights attorney and professor of Africana Studies at Rutgers University, an editorial committee member of the Journal of Palestinian Studies and the co-founding editor of Jadiya a electronic magazine on the middle east and she's the author of justice for some law and the question of palestine and she has an article of the washington post sheikh jarrah highlights the violent brazenness of israel's colonial project welcome to background briefing Noura arakat thank you for having me ian well thanks for joining us and obviously president biden does not need a foreign policy crisis he's got an incredibly ambitious domestic agenda but nevertheless, he has one on his hands in terms of what's going on in Israel and in Gaza. And they have sent an envoy who's now there, not necessarily a high-up envoy in Hadi Amur. And what the U.S. is calling for now is a sustainable calm. That seems like a low bar, but is that realistic option?
2: It's absolutely unacceptable. The Biden administration is the key supporter of the violence that we're seeing against Palestinians. It's an all-out assault against all Palestinian geographies, from the captive and besieged population of the Gaza Strip, to the Palestinian citizens of Israel, again, who are enduring now programs, to the families in Sheikh Jarrah and around Jerusalem who are being removed from their homes without the United States' support. 3.8 billion dollars a year Israel would not be able to sustain this type of violence without the US's provided immunity within the Security Council that has shielded the Israel from accountability had they been held accountable in the past they would not dare to be uh, meeting out this violence today this not would not be possible the Biden administration needs to go much farther than just asking for calm calm doesn't mean anything for Palestinians it means that they're put back into their forms of captivity to endure other forms of sustained colonial violence that subjugates them if their citizens are second-class citizens if they live under occupation subjects them to uh, untold forms of removal violence arbitrary detention and if they're subject to siege. In the Gaza Strip, and warfare, it is being subject to short death. What does this mean? have to go back to calm. That is not calm. That's just peace of mind for the rest of the world that doesn't want the headache of this kind of, of heartbreak that they're witnessing. But in order to truly end the heartbreak, they need to do much more than just go back to a status quo. Israel must be held to account. Sanctions are the least that the United States can do by ending aid, military aid, by Ceasing the transfer of weapons by holding them to account in
1: different international fora.
0: Well, it seems that Israel is not particularly concerned about what anybody thinks. I mean, the idea of blowing up a building that houses the Associated Press and Al Jazeera and, and a bunch of other press outlets in Gaza would indicate a complete lack of concern about public opinion in the world at large. How do, how do you Are read you that?
2: I, I, I would ask you as somebody who's followed the region as well, have, are you surprised at all that Israel believes that it can act to them? with such brazenness. They have literally not been held to account for anything that they have done to Palestinians. Between 2006 and 2014, Israel launched three large-scale offensives against the besieged population in Gaza where the five points of ingress and egress were sealed. The population could not become refugees. They have been subject aerial bombardment, one of the most densely populated places on earth, with precise weapons technology, in reckless targeting that would amount to a violation of Article 51 in the additional protocol, which is tantamount to terrorism, and yet nothing, they have not been held to account, no one has been prosecuted, no diplomats have been removed from any of, of their positions within Israel, no sanctions have been imposed. This brazenness that Israel is evidencing is not a reflection of anything unique on Israel's part, but it is the reflection of an international community that has allowed this country to act with impunity and has allowed Palestinians to be sacrificial lambs for this violence. It's, I'm not surprised that I'm incredibly disappointed. We have been, I, I, I you know, in the past, I've thought, well, okay, because of Hamas the rhetoric has uh, has clouded our ability to be able to analyze the power disparities um, that are involved here. But what's happening right now? We're seeing—I don't know if you're following this—but missiles that Israel is launching into the Gaza Strip is ripping children's bodies apart. What else must Palestinians endure before the international community says enough? Absolutely not. Who will protect Palestinians?
0: And again, I'm speaking with Noura Arakat, who is a human rights attorney and a professor of Africana Studies at Rutgers University, an editorial committee member of the Journal of Palestine Studies and the co-founding editor of Chedalia, a electronic magazine on the Middle East. She's the author of Justice for Some, Law and the Question of Palestine, and she has an article in the Washington Post, Sheikh Jarrah Highlights the Violent Brazenness of Israel's Colonialist Project. And we don't know exactly what the casualties are but there was an israeli airstrike on a refugee camp in gaza that killed 10 people there's estimated at least 200 people have been killed since the fighting began on monday in gaza and nearly half of those according to palestinian health officials are women and children and of course they have been in israel there've been i think about 9 or 10 casualties so far so obviously there's the disparity you mentioned is also the disparity in casualties, but how much do you see this, Nora, as being a repeat of 2014?
2: It's worse. This is worse, which is so heartbreaking because when we watched the assault in 2014, we said this, this form of violence is unprecedented. Israel is literally... I, look, I study the law. So the other thing that Israel is doing is, is, is practicing and reshaping the laws of war that can be used against civilian populations to the detriment of the most marginalized and the least protected. They are also experimenting with different weapons. White phosphorus that should only be used on battlefields in order to create smoke screen between two belligerent armies is being used on civilian neighborhoods. White phosphorus burns through the skin and the bone cannot be put out easily. We are talking about incendiary weapons against populations. When we talk about the refugee camp, Gaza is home to uh, uh, 75% of Gaza's 2 million people are refugees. They are already precarious and in need of assistance for survival. 40% of the population are youth. I want the listeners to understand that we are not numbers. These are children. These are families. These are dreams that are being vanquished. In Shabat refugee camp, when the home, one of the homes was shot down, everyone in the family was killed except for a two-month-old year baby named Ammar Who is going to explain to Ahmad where his family went and how they disappeared in an instant and that the international community looked by and said, we urge for calm in that moment? There was racism here, Ian. If the situation was reversed, and even a fraction of number of Israelis have been killed with such viciousness. That would not be the response. That's the kind of pain that Palestinians are also enduring. It's understanding that our lives aren't as worthy. Our people have become desensitized to this death. Otherwise, it wouldn't be permitted.
0: And, of course, Saturday is the day that the Palestinians commemorate what they call the al Nakba, the catastrophe. So this is rubbing salt in the wound, this whole hideous situation that's happening now, but in terms of the political winners, if they are any, in this horrible tragedy, analysts are now suggesting that Hamas is now more popular than ever amongst Palestinians both inside Israel and the the West Bank and, and, of course, Gaza.
2: According to whom? According to whom? Hamas is not that popular. Neither political party is popular for the Palestinians. We have been held in a position where we have not been able to exercise our own will because we have been suspended within the paradigm of peace process that has maintained a dominated Palestinian authority in place against all forms of democratic change and governance. Hamas never got the ability to govern, which is why they continuously hold on to the fact that they, they have a legitimacy to be there. When they were in Gaza, there was a preemptive coup, uh, an attempt at a preemptive coup um, or, or, or coup against them that was backed by the United States and supported by Fatah, which has created an internecine conflict for the Palestinians so that right now Palestinians are not only subject to Israeli Settler colonialism and apartheid backed by the United States, the world's superpower. But on top of that, we also have the challenge of an authoritarian government uh, without a state. It is the worst of all conditions. Now, what's impeding our ability to move beyond this intransigence is the fact that nobody really wants to deal with the root cause of the situation. Everybody, it's much easier. to to, to urge for calm, to return to a status quo where Palestinians endure structural violence rather than addressing that there's no parity here. There's no parity between the only nuclear power in the Middle East and a stateless people. We don't need bilateral negotiations. What we need is pressure on Israel. What we need is sanctions. There has been no country, there has been no entity, there has been no people in history that has uh, forgone and and surrendered its privilege voluntarily Israel will give Palestinians nothing voluntarily and in fact under the cover of the peace process have been able to exact increasingly more territory and exact the narrative of victimhood even as they are attacking Palestinians
0: Well that's of course what the peace process is, it's a process, it has nothing to do with peace it's the continuing shrinking of Palestinian territory and the expanding of Israeli territory. And the Israeli right has never really declared its end game, except it would seem that they're trying to make life so miserable for Palestinians that maybe they'll slink off into Jordan or somewhere. But where do you think if the.
2: Or they'll be trapped in the Gaza Strip? Frankly, the, the Israeli right has made it very clear. For them, this is all Eretz, Israel, the land is all there. When people ask me, but how did the situation get so bad? I have to retort, you have not been paying attention. Ever since, it was clear that Camp David fell apart in 2000. And what Edward Said said on the morning after the signing of the Oslo Accord, that this was not a peace process, this was not a peace accord, this was a trap for Palestinians, that became evident for the world to see in 2000 after the Camp David uh, talks fell apart. And then by the end of the uh, Second House of in two thousand five, it was done. Israel had shifted from a framework of occupation to a framework of all out warfare against the population to whom they owed a responsibility to protect. The Israeli left was completely eviscerated, and what we saw was the ascendance now of the right wing of Israel into the center of their government so that Netanyahu, who everyone seems to bemoan and, and point fingers at as the bad guy, is in fact Center. Center.
0: Right. Well, he may be replaced Not by like Naftali Bennett, right?
2: <laughs> and that that says it all by Naftali Bennett, who, who thinks that uh, Netanyahu is actually too soft on Palestinians. My friend just called me from Yaffa. Her, she is a young woman married with a young child. Her, their car was burned last night. Yaffa is supposedly a mixed Israeli-Palestinian city within Israel. They are citizens of the state. The city has been evacuated of all its Jewish-Israeli residents as mobs, as right-wing mobs make way with the protection of police to attack Palestinians. They have marked homes of whom to attack businesses, of, of which to attack. She said to me that they have no one to protect them. they formed protection committees in order to protect themselves. And, and says to me, she says, you know, it seems to me this is kind of like watching the United States from here, when we saw the ascendance of white supremacists who were emboldened by the Trump administration to make their violence explicit and to make their right to white supremacy clear. This is the situation inside Israel right now. Would the response to white supremacists in the United States simply be a return to calm if they were attacking and ransacking and rioting and burning down the homes of Black communities and Black people? I don't understand why it is so difficult. I mean, I do understand. I do think that there's been a thorough dehumanization process that's made it really difficult for anyone to see Palestinians because the propaganda has made Palestine synonymous with Hamas, synonymous with Islamic terrorism, synonymous with violence, so that in people's imagination, Gaza is no more than a military base. They forget that it's playgrounds, it's schools, it's hospitals, it's neighborhoods, it's homes, it's festivities, it's places where people eat ice cream and sit on the shore and fry fish. It is home for us. It is not a military base. But People have treated it. Even and I look at pictures and I'm watching the coverage. The Washington Post had tons of smoke saying that Israel was attacking Hamas tunnels all night. They weren't attacking tunnels. They were attacking Hamas family in his home. They were attacking children ripped apart. They were attacking mothers who were placing all their children in single rooms in the in the hopes that if they die, they die together. That is the horizon of Palestinian dreams right now, that in death, that at
0: least in death, they go together. So is that to say, though, that there's a kind of symbiosis between Hamas and, and the Israelis, that they this feeds extremists on both sides, that particularly the Palestinian people themselves, without representation, are the victims here? Because it, the fact that the Israelis have always prided themselves on having Arab-Israeli citizens that seems to have blown up in their face. So I'm wondering whether, just in the last couple of minutes here, Nora, that you can point to any any improvement, any hope, because it seems that international opinion, even though maybe it's only rhetorical, is shifting in against Israel and amongst the young in this country and even in the Congress itself, amongst the Democratic Party. So is there any sense that there is a a change underway, at least in terms of public opinion, whether that in its, in turn moves to some kind of policies and pressure towards justice is another matter. But at least is there anything happening in terms of the former?
2: I want to just make clear to the audience that Israel occupied the Gaza Strip in 1956 the first time, and then in 1967, the second time, that continues to endure Hamas was not established until 1987, did not shoot a first rocket until 1994 after the Ibrahimi Mosque Massacre by Israeli settlers of worshipping Palestinians, and yet have been subject to these forms of occupation and enclosure. Hamas is a boogeyman. Even in the absence of Hamas, in the form of Muhammad Abbas, who has been the most compliant, accommodating Palestinian leader in our entire history, who accommodated every Israeli and American request. Settlement was unabating. There was no capital. There was no airport. There was no independent economy. There have been no conditions which Palestinians have been able to provide where Israel has said that we are somehow eligible in order to govern ourselves because they never plans on it but they have plans on from the beginning of the peace process which is evident in the documents themselves in in the negotiating documents and the peace treaty or agreements themselves is that palestinians at most would be have autonomy they would be autonomous in and in, in isolated bunches of reservations but they would never be independent what we are seeing now is not in spite of Uh, People not paying attention to the peace process, but precisely because of the terms of the bilaterally uh, negotiated uh, process under the terms of Oslo. So for the international community at this point, which has been suspended into its fatigue, they don't want to deal with this. The political cost of it has become too high because the anti-Semitism has been weaponized to such a perverse degree that it's paralyzed even diplomatic capitals. But what's necessary now is pressure. Pressure. Sanctions. There must be sanctions on Israel. There must be criminal prosecutions of Israeli leaders. This is not okay. We've said never again so many times. Let us act on that and make sure that it is never again against Palestinians, not after they're gone.
0: Well, Noura Arakat, I thank you very much for joining us here today.
2: Thank you for having me, Anne.
0: And again, I've been speaking with Noura Erekat, who is a human rights attorney and professor of Africana Studies at Rutgers University, an editorial committee member of the Journal for Palestine Studies, and the co founding editor of Jadalia, an electronic magazine on the Middle East. She's the author of Justice for Some, Law and the Question of Palestine. And she has an article at the Washington Post. Sheikh Jarrah highlights the violent brazenness of Israel's colonialist project. We're going to take a brief station break and we're back. Looking into how we can urgently address climate change and reimagine a new way of life that can bring about a healthy and flourishing environment for all. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now from the UK is Laurie Lebourne Langton, an award-winning researcher and writer and an associate fellow at the Institute for Public Policy Research. And also joining us is Matthew Lawrence, the founder and director of Commonwealth, a UK-based think tank that designs ownership models for a democratic and sustainable economy. They are the authors of the new book just out, Planet on Fire, a Manifesto for the Age of Environmental Breakdown. Welcome to Background Briefing, Laurie Langbourne Langton and Matthew Lawrence. Good to be here with you.
3: Well, to be thanks,
0: here. thanks for joining us. And, and let me start with you, Matthew. We've had a record 7% drop in global carbon emissions in 2020 as a result of the pandemic. But as now, of course, we've had the announcement in the United States that we can take off our masks if we if we're fully vaccinated and already I'm noticing the freeways in Los Angeles are going back to being jammed there's not so many more aircraft in the air but we had such an interesting and I frankly found enjoyable respite with the skies were clear the freeways weren't bumper to bumper and people were spending more time at home with their families And it seems to me that the model that was created by this pandemic, clearly by accident, is one that we should be following. And uh, I just don't understand why uh, people will need now to go back to their office buildings, drive for hours and hours in gridlock, spewing carbon into the air, spending hours, hours each day poisoning the planet to get to work, to sit in an office and then to go home when what they've been functioning perfectly well from a home office.
3: Yeah, so I think there's a couple of things there. So I think the first thing is to really just stress the scale of the challenge, which is not not just linked to the climate crisis, but environmental breakdown in the round. So that's biodiversity loss, uh, that's soil erosion, that's sort of degradation of natural systems. But I think the important point is that even though, as you say, COVID has uh, caused this really sort of sharp interruption in emissions and a sharp drop, even that drop alone was not actually enough at the scale we need to do if we're going to keep global temperature rises within the bounds of non catastrophic outcomes. So even though there has been this big drop, it's not nearly enough. So we need much greater ambition. And the second thing is, as you kind of allude to, it's kind of been sort of a moment of through the looking glass darkly in which many of the sort of things that, as you say, a sort of um, sustainable world would depend upon. So, you know, Uh, much more low carbon forms of mobility, sort of uh, the centrality of care and human relationships over sort of consumption, et cetera, et cetera. These type of things have been centred in COVID. And we've also seen the return of some of the tools that we'll need. So public investment, sort of the direction of the economy towards meeting human needs over sort of, you know, endless profit making. So there has been, you know, clearly some interesting institutional and political moments And the challenge really, as we sort of begin very slowly, and I think, you know, there's still a bumpy path ahead, um, COVID, particularly when you look at the global situation. But I think the political um, challenge and so potentially the opportunity there is to remember some of the sort of important gains that were made in the crisis, but then translate that into a much more systemic, systematic approach to building up this post-carbon future, building up a sustainable future that centres human needs, you know, care, a different type of economy. And that's the challenge for us.
0: And Laurie, do you think that the lesson has been learned? I mean, we've much of what we've been told about the need to go green is almost along the lines of, you know, eat your broccoli. You know, you've just got to sort of suck it up and do the right thing, even though it may not be pleasant. When in fact, what we've just learned from this year when we've the carbon emissions have gone down uh, because of COVID what we've learned is that it's very positive and it seems to me the only thing that's limiting us now in terms of a new lifestyle is our imagination.
4: I think that it, it hangs in the balance and we've been presented here with uh, a warning from the future you could say in the type of crisis that the COVID pandemic has brought Uh, It's not just a, a health crisis. It very rapidly became an economic crisis, a crisis of care, of politics, the list goes on. And that foreshadows the types of systemic, and by that I mean all of our interconnected systems that map out across the world, being shocked by things. And in many countries, particularly countries like ours, we often forget that very bad things can happen very quickly on such a scale. And in the kind of emergency response that Matt was mapping out there, um, the, the, the state, particularly the state as an actor in society, to be able to steward us to a different type of system is really important here. And in the same way that we weren't able to appropriately respond to the coronavirus pandemic just as individuals as mask wearers as people who are being physically distant from others we can't imagine being able to transition to a new state where we're tackling appropriately the environmental crisis without the coordination of the state that doesn't mean a return to some big state or whatever we had in the past it's going to have to be a very nimble one that draws on a lot of the resources of all sorts of communities and That's the crucial element that we face now. And it does, I think, hang in the balance. And we've seen many instances of states and economies beginning to bounce back, backward, uh, back to the the kind of state that they were in before. And as we all know, that's just not going to do it. Um, So I think it hangs in the balance right now. And it's going to require a lot of action politically for people to remind decision makers that they are demanding a new way of doing things. And they probably were doing so before the pandemic, because we must remember that one of the reasons why so many have died, again, in both of our countries, is because we were vulnerable to this. And our health was vulnerable, not just because of the individual choices that we made, but because of the way our societies were constructed. The causes of the causes of ill health, access to educational opportunities, the right kind of food, transport options, physical activity, were badly impaired, and that was to do with our economic system.
0: Well... You've been listening to Background Briefing. You want to stay tuned for NPR News. And then Sean will be in with uh, Midpoint and Franco Silva. So don't go anywhere.